I'm so pleased today to welcome you to this special program. We've just come back from Irkutsk in Siberia. What a land that is, friend. And in a few moments, we're going to give you a report from Siberia where we have seen thousands of non-believers come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and come to salvation. So thank you today for joining our telecast. And I'd like to welcome today a very special face on this program. I'd like to welcome my wife, Beverly, and I've asked her today to give you a history of this remarkable city in eastern Siberia, the capital of eastern Siberia, the city of Irkutsk, right next to the great lake Baikal. Would you please welcome Beverly? Irkutsk is the capital of eastern Siberia and has played an important role in the history of Russia. A history that, be that begins in the middle of the 17th century when a Cossack detachment sent on an expedition from Western Russia arrived in Irkutsk. The Cossacks built a settlement on the banks of the beautiful Angara River. Gradually, the news about the newborn town began to spread all over Russia and as a result, more and more people began to arrive. The location itself was ideal. It was and is surrounded by the magnificent tiger forest and is only about 30 minutes from the largest freshwater lake in the world, the mighty Lake Baikal. The length of the lake is the distance from Los Angeles to San Francisco and a bit further than that, in fact. Being so far from the big industrial cities of Russia, the town had to produce most of its own goods. This helped to make the Yakuts people resilient and independent, and it also made the town an important commercial and trading centre. By the end of the 18th century, Siberia was also known for a penal settlement where both criminals and dissidents were sent. The Decemberists were a large group of noblemen, many of them related to the royal family, who revolted against autocracy and serfdom in St. Petersburg in December 1825, hence the name Decemberists. However, the, the Tsar discovered the plot and had five of their leaders put to death, and the remainder were exiled to Siberia. The Decemberists had a large impact on the history of Irkutsk. After some years in prison, they were released, and because of their willingness to help the, poor class, the poorer class of people, they were soon well accepted. Being well-educated and a cultured noble people, they had a tremendous influence in developing the economy, the sciences, agriculture, medical services, education, and the cultural life of the city. Another great event was the building of the Trans-Siberian Railroad at the end of the 19th century, which of course accelerated Siberia's ec economic progress. Then, October 1917, news of the victory of the Socialist Revolution was heard in Irkutsk. However, Many of the merchants and others didn't want anything to do with it. And it wasn't until two years later, when a division of the Red Army entered the city, that Soviet power was really established. For the next 70 years, Siberia, like the rest of Russia, was under the curse of communism and atheism. But then in 1991, God opened wide the doors and gave us the privilege of being one of the first evangelistic teams to enter the former Soviet Union to preach the everlasting gospel. August 8, 1999, and the Carter Report arrives in Irkutsk to begin a months-long series of meetings filled with hope and love. We have many wonderful stories to share with you including our visit to an orphanage where we handed out the beautiful toys that many of you so generously gave to us before we left here. We were also able to give a large supply of food to, to two other orphanages. Just one personal story, and I believe this sums up the feeling of many or all of the people that I met during the program. 
On the very last evening, I was approached by a well-dressed and well-spoken lady who said to me, thank you and all of your friends in America and Australia for coming here. Before you came, I was sad and lonely and without hope. But now I feel like flying. And if you could have seen the expression of love on her face, you would have known that your gifts of money and your prayers have indeed been blessed by God. And so on her behalf and on the behalf of thousands of others who now have peace and hope and love in their lives, thank you. And thank you so much for helping to make all of this possible. Forever running but 
very dear friend of mine, a very special friend, a very special friend of this church and this ministry, is Dr. Rex Edwards from the General Conference. Dr. Edwards is the Associate Vice President of Griggs University in Washington, and he came with us to Erkuts, and he spoke to the ministers there. Not only was he a great blessing to all of us, but he ran seminars for the pastors. And this is how he, he has spent many years running seminars for pastors. He was a member of the Ministerial Association for a long time, and during that time was in charge of the quite famous preach program around the world for pastors of our faith and not of our denomination. He is a distinguished preacher and theologian, and he is my friend and my colleague, and uh, I could say from the same division which we consider to be the best division in the world, the vast South Pacific Division. And so please join me in giving a very special welcome to our friend, Dr. Rex Edwards. Thank you, John. It's a great privilege. Recollection is the only paradise from which we can never be turned away. And I have three very abiding recollections that summarize my experience with John and the team in Erkuts. Now, each of these abiding recollections can be summarized in a single word, each of which begins with the letter M. And the first one is the man. Perhaps John 1 verse 6 personifies what I think of John Carter. A man sent from God whose name was John. <laughs> now, we as preachers, we as preachers always emphasize the second phrase, sent from God because we believe we have divine authorization. Sometimes we forget we are just men. And the day a preacher remembers that he is a man and therefore is subject to human limitations, at that moment he will bend his knee and issue a declaration of dependence upon God. And that manifests itself in a life of prayer. I witnessed that in Irkutsk. Eight o'clock every morning we gathered in the lobby of the hotel with our bodyguards. John never missed one of those worship periods. And then in the evening before the meetings commenced behind the stage, we cried unto God. We surrounded John with arms of love and prayer that he would be a fit vessel through which grace could be mediated. You see, John believes that ministry without prayer is atheism. I want to tell you, that program was bathed in prayer and under the control of the Spirit of God. The second abiding recollection is comprehended in the word message, the message and particularly its relevance. Now I have taught preaching for many years and the difference between a circle and an ellipse is that a circle only has one center. An ellipse has two centers. All great preaching is elliptical. It has two centers. The preacher enters the biblical world. In that world he finds timeless truths which he brings into the contemporary world. The preacher's task is threefold. Investigation, interpretation, and application. And John knows that interpretation and investigation without application is abortion. You should have seen 
the hope born in the hearts of those 13,000 people as John reminded them of who they are as children of God. The message is still relevant. And finally, the final abiding recollection that I have of Erkutz is summarized in the word movement. The movement of the Spirit. You see, we witnessed in Erkutz a new Pentecost. And we should not be surprised because we are living now in the age of the Spirit. And you know, John, to endeavor to achieve in the flesh what can only be accomplished in the power of the Spirit is absolutely futile. And I witnessed the movement of the Spirit of God there in Irkutsk. You know, John, I've come to the conviction that there is too much perfection in the church. We're organized, we're mechanized, we're even computerized. But John and I know that the New Jerusalem cannot be built with the powers of Babylon. Only the power that comes from God out of heaven. Remember, the gift of the Spirit is inseparable from the work of the Son. And in that, John and you are all happily engaged. John is successful because he sees the invisible. He expects the impossible. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he achieves the incredible. And for that, I thank God for him and for you and all others who support this ministry. Jesus never did many of the things that we consider necessary and important. Jesus never chaired a committee. Jesus never sat on a committee. That gives me a precedent. Jesus, while highly educated, never went to school or college. He was never ordained by a church. He was never employed by a church. He was never on any person's payroll. He never had a check account, owned a home, a motor car, a telephone, or a computer. He never watched television and never listened to radio. He never traveled overseas, never went out of his own little country. He never wrote a book. Today, most folks seem to be writing books. Jesus never wrote a book. He never ran for public office, never was involved in politics, never held office in the church or in the world, never was married, and never was politically correct. <laughs> and yet, he changed the course of history and change the world because he did one thing that was supremely important. He did that which was tremendously essential that many of us are good in those other things but we forget the most important thing that a minister and that a church are called to do. And I want you to take the Bible now and turn with me please to the book of Isaiah chapter 61 and verses 1 down to 3, if you don't mind, dear friends. Those watching on television, I invite you to get your Bibles. Turn with me to the Gospel prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, and verses 1 down to 3. And we shall look at these verses, and then I'm going to break the words up, the verses up, and we're going to talk for a little while about their meaning. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. This is what is called a messianic prophecy, it was fulfilled in the life and the ministry of Jesus. But in a sense, in a very real sense, these words are applicable to every person who takes the name of Christ. 
And notice the words, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news or the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness, instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of despair they will be called oaks of righteousness a planting of the lord for the display of his splendor by his lips and through his hands he poured upon the world a flood of love and grace he was called to do these things to give to men and women a crown of beauty, the oil of gladness and a garment of praise. And may I suggest to you today on the authority of Holy Scripture, this is the mission and the work of the church. And every person who names the name of Christ is called to do those things that the master did. Would you please Notice these verses one by one. Isaiah uh, 61 and verse 1, and we shall work through these verses together, dear friend of mine. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord. The work of God cannot be done by the Spirit of man. Unless the Spirit of God is in something, then there will be no success. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. The story is told of a group of elders, of village elders in Africa who would sit around the campfires at night. In the center were the sticks of wood, and there was the blazing fire. And sitting around the fire were the elders chatting and talking among themselves. Lots of talk. And one day as the elders were traveling together through that part of Africa, not far from their campsite, they came upon a group of baboons. This is true. And the baboons had placed in a ring in the center a few sticks of wood. And they were sitting around the sticks of wood and they were chatting and talking and dialoguing like the elders. And one of the elders said, look at the baboons. They're copying us. They have a, a ring and they're sitting there and they're gibbering and they're talking. They're having a committee meeting. <laughs> they have everything. They have the ring, they have the elders, and they have the sticks. But they have no fire. Oh, my friend, what an indictment upon the church. They have the committees, they have the elders, they have the talk, but do they have the fire of God? Jesus said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Some time ago, here it is, I attended a very important church conference. It was held in Minneapolis and I spoke at the night meetings in the Minneapolis 19... 88 conference, a hundred years after the great conference of 1888. And these were given to the delegates. And they were very, very fine. But because of council regulations, when the delegates were told to hold them up, they were told, you can have no fire in them. And so we stood there holding these things to the church and the world, but no fire. So often, my friend, that is the very condition that is in the church. We have the committees, we have everything, but we hold these up to God and we almost insult his holy name because while we have these things, they have no fire. 
of Jesus, it was said, he will anoint you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The story is told of an Indian here in this great continent of the United States of America who was visiting a railway yard and there was a great locomotive, one of those great old steamers, but it was silent. It was going nowhere and the Indian climbed up and looked inside where the driver should stand and where the fireman should stand beside him and he said, big problem, no fire inside. Big problem, no fire inside. My friend, if there is no fire inside, there will be no huff, there will be no puff, there will be no steam, and there'll be no movement, and there'll be no souls one to Jesus. What the church of the living God needs more than anything else, what this poor sinner struggling sinner saved by grace needs more than anything else is fire inside Amen. that's what you need my friend that's what our preachers need that's what you need that's what our churches need that's what our conferences need we need fire inside and what a change takes place when God in spite of our weaknesses and our infirmities and our failings when God comes with the fire of heaven. I freely confess to you today that I was in Eakuts, as Paul said, in much weakness and in fear and in trembling, and my confidence was not in man because I felt my complete, utter inadequacy, I think, as I've never felt before. When I stood before a vast audience that was anything but a congregation on the opening night, what a wild audience it was. I was almost unnerved and I felt like coming home. I felt that God had taken the wings off the chariot for a while. There I saw a vast crowd of unbelievers who had come not to hear the word of God, but had come to the stadium where they are used to seeing football matches. And they came with their cigarettes and they came with their cans of beer and they came by the thousands. They came in by the thousands, they walked about by the thousands. They seemed to be an irreverent crowd of people. And I thought to myself as I stood up before that crowd, what is man, what can I do, why am I here? But I'm here today to testify to the fact that there is the spirit of the living God who was alive in this world. Amen. And as I preached the word of God here in Irkutsk, three and a half thousand miles east of Moscow, at the ends of the earth, I discovered that the spirit of God is in Irkutsk as he is in Los Angeles and any other part of the world. And Jesus said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. It is a strange thing because it must only be by divine grace that God is prepared to take sinful, stumbling human beings and clothe them with the spirit of God for his glory. And I saw, and you will see the faces of people who came as irreverent, godless people, I saw their faces changed and I saw a godless audience become a worshipping congregation. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, Jesus said. Is he upon you? Read on. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to preach Good news to the poor, that is the next phrase I want you to think about, about. Jesus said he was anointed to preach good news to the poor. We are not anointed, my friend, to do any other work in the ministry, but to preach the word of God. The Bible says he ordained 12 and sent them forth to preach. That is the calling of the minister, Pastor Rex. We're told in Ephesians that people outside of the kingdom of God are without hope and without God in the world. 
Why does the church exist? The church exists for one supreme purpose, to preach good news to the world. If your church is not doing that, I say to you, either change it or leave it. And find a church where you can have fellowship with a group of people who believe in the Bible. Every pastor is called first and foremost to preach good news to the world, to the poor. People say, why have you gone to Russia? Because God has opened the doors. There are millions of people across this vast land. When you think if you travel from Moscow to Vladivostok, you travel 6,000 miles. More than double the size. You can put the United States in this area here. And millions and millions and millions of people without a knowledge of God. And the Bible says without hope or God in the world. Does it not stir you today to preach good news to the poor? Every pastor is called to do this. We are not called to babysit sleeping churches Every pastor is anointed to preach good news. Every evangelist, those who are left. Every member of the church, every member of the church. Yes, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, if you are genuine, to preach good news to the poor. We are called not to preach traditions or human philosophies, this ism or that ism, but the good news of salvation. Yesterday, I called a dear friend who was helping us to build a church here in Aircoots. He said, please come and see me. I have been going through such an awful time of trouble. He's helping us build a church here. I said, what is the problem, Charles? He wanted to be here today. He said, a month ago, I had a vision. I had, he said, I don't think it was even a dream. I think it was. He said, I awoke I was wide awake and I could see that there was a judgment going on in heaven and people were discussing my name. And he said, at the end of the discussion, the angel said, rejected. He has been sick to death ever since that temptation from Satan. Because I said to him, Charles, do you trust in Jesus? Yes. Is your life under the blood? Yes. Are you living according to God's word? Yes. I said nobody can pluck you out of the Father's hand. That is the good news that we preach. We are not here, my friend, to talk the opinions of men and to put burdens upon men's shoulders. But we are here to lift the burdens by preaching good news. Amen. Isaiah 61 and verse 1, or as Pastor Edwards and I say, more correctly, Isaiah. <laughs> Chapter 1, 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Rex, how are we doing today? How are we doing? Are you doing well? I'm doing well too. You and I are going to have a wonderful chat this afternoon during the meeting. Back to the text. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. You notice it says preach. It's got nothing to do with counseling. Jesus didn't say go into all the world and counsel people to death. <laughs> he never called us to be psychologists or psychiatrists. He called us to preach. And when you preach, you make a noise. People say, but it's gone out of style. I want to tell you, heaven hasn't gone out of style, nor has hell. Amen. Amen. And while there's a heaven, and while there's a hell, God is going to have preachers. Amen. And on occasions, they'll shout a bit. Mm -hmm. Is that all right? Amen. Yes, of course it's all right. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. There may be brokenhearted people here today grieving the loss of loved ones, grieving because of the consequences of sin, grieving because of some great loss. 
We spoke to people there in Irkutsk who have seen suffering like nobody. This railway line was built with the blood of millions. Ten million people died in Siberia as the victims of damnable communism. What a joy it is to preach a message that comforts those who are grieving and to tell them that soon and very soon we're going to see the king. Amen. Read on, dear hearts. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, prisoners of sin primarily, held fast by the shackles of sin. Do you not think that these people could understand this? This is the area of the death camps. And I want to stir the hearts of those in this great land of the United States of America to do something for these people. These are the forgotten millions. How we waste money in the church in America. How we waste it. How we ought to be stirred to take Christ. Good news to the prisoners. Please read on. What I'm saying is the truth. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that's grace. C.S. Lewis was asked the question, what makes Christianity different from other world religions? Because the theologians were debating it and C.S. Lewis said one word, grace. Amen. Grace Grace, grace. I will never forget the Saturday night in Irkutsk just a few days ago. Beverly was speaking from the pulpit, giving a good message before I got up to preach. And all of a sudden, a young man jumped onto the stage. My security Man, Valeri, immediately tried to throw him to the ground. But he couldn't do so. So they too grappled Beverly like a soldier kept on preaching. The man tried to come towards me because I was standing just at the back of Beverly. And then two other security men came and pulled him down and discovered that he was a member of the Russian SWAT team drunk and carrying a loaded revolver. Anything could have happened. Two days later, the leaders of the Russian SWAT team came to see me. I had become known to them because several days before there had been a drug bust in the hotel and they had all these gangsters from Chesnia lying out in the mud, their guns out, masks over their faces. I came back to the hotel and thought it was a wonderful opportunity to take pictures. <laughs> David also had the television camera out the window. We believe in freedom of the press. And to get a better shot, I ran down the hallway with my camera in my hand, huffing and puffing, not knowing that six armed men with guns drawn were running behind me with masks over their faces. And as I came into the room where David was, they burst into the room with guns. I love excitement, don't you? <laughs> and so, two or three days later, the president of these professionals, some of the best soldiers in the world, came to see me and on behalf of the Russian government to tender an apology. They said, Pastor Carter, you're here as our guest. You've had two experiences. We chased you with guns. I said, we, you had your overcoat on. You see, I'd been sick. I'd just come in from preaching out of doors. I had it turned up over my ears. 
and I was running and carrying something in my hand and there was a drug bust on. Why would they ever think that was suspicious? <laughs> but they burst into the room and, and now, two or three days later, three of the leaders of the SWAT team, the president of the SWAT team, sat down and they said, we've come to apologize. And then we discussed young Slava. They said, this has never happened before. We're covered with shame and embarrassment. He's going to be very severely punished. That probably meant going to prison. In Russia, that's the death sentence because everybody in the prison has got tuberculosis. They're dying like flies. Conditions in the jails in Siberia are now worse than they were in the days of communism. No medicines and nobody cares. And so they said he'll be punished, but I said to them, and I don't say this with any thought of self-righteousness, but I believe in a gospel of grace. I said, I want you to go and tell Slaver that I forgive him. You forgive him, they said, through the train. I forgive him. And what is more, I'm asking the Russian government and the authorities and the police to forgive him too. You want us to forgive him? I said, if I can forgive him, I want you to forgive him. That was a new thought. And then the president of the SWAT team, who was a gentleman, said to me, we'd like to make some compensation. We'd like to make available some of our SWAT team members to go with you and to protect you. So this will never happen again. And so the next day, we had members of the Russian SWAT team. I would rather have them protecting me than fighting me. I wouldn't like to go to war with those young men, heavily armed, but built so strong. And two nights later at the meeting, a young man came in with his coat on, the big bulge here, strongly built. I thought I've seen him before. He came and sat down with the other member of the SWAT team in the audience, and I went over to him, and I took a Bible. And I said, I want you to know that I forgive you. And here is a Bible. And he got up and he put his arms around me. That was the man who came to the meeting with a gun. And the authorities let it be known to me, because you forgave him, we have forgiven him too. And we have put the past behind. This is grace. If God can forgive me, a poor stumbling sinner, he can forgive you and every one of us. I tell you, my friend, please read on. Verse 3, and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Just a few nights ago, it was the last night of the campaign and we have moved from three weeks of meetings outdoors in the rain and the cold and the thunder and we'd moved inside the palace of sport. I preached on the topic of heaven. And then I had an altar call. People say, you believe in altar calls? Of course. The Bible teaches it. And I preached on a crown of beauty, the oil of gladness, and a garment of praise. And I saw it. I saw... A vast number of people come forward, including my bodyguards and the SWAT team. And I said with my team goodbye to them. Until I go back, I hope in January. There I saw the crowd that had been restless, smoking and cursing and pushing and fighting. 
And there I saw tears of repentance and tears of joy, happy faces, and people coming, young people, so many young people coming and taking hold of us and saying, Spasiba, 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 thank you, thank you, thank you. This is what God does. God can take from you the ugliness, the hurt, the pain, the depression, the sin. He can give you a crown of beauty. He can give you oil of gladness, oil of gladness, and he can give you a garment of praise. I've seen it happen under the worst circumstances. It can, if it can happen to communists, and atheists and unbelievers, surely, my friend, it can happen to you and to you and to me. Amen. And of course, that's what Jesus did, you know. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. We can never do what Jesus did. We cannot die for somebody's sins. We cannot live the life that he lived. We can copy it. We cannot live it just like that. But we can preach good news. We can give people the crown of beauty, the oil of gladness, and a garment of praise. I'm reminded that's what Jesus did for Mary, who was a prostitute. Once she had her hair done up as a prostitute, he gave her a crown of beauty. She was often filled with remorse, but he gave her the oil of gladness. And he clothed her not in the garments of a prostitute, but in the garments of praise. How can I ever forget what God has done? And what Jesus did, we are to do. That is the work of the church. That's why we went to Siberia. You have something here for me. Here it is. Some years ago, Two and a half years ago, Beverly and I, Norm Matiko and others, traveled all the way from Moscow right across to Vladivostok. We stopped at every railway station, two in the morning, three in the morning, in the midst of winter, 40 below, preached the good news, gave out Bibles, gave out medicines, and greeted our believers. These are the places, incidentally, where we've had campaigns, Kiev, Moscow, St. Petersburg, Nizhny Novgorod, Dzinsk, and Irkutsk, and glory be to God, we've seen almost 13,500 souls baptized. Hundreds of thousands come to God. But look at this carefully. A few days ago, it was rusty, but we've had it cleaned for church. It's a spike from the Trans-Siberian railway line. I'm told by the experts it goes back to the days of the czars. Really, I guess it should be painted red because I guess it really is stained with blood. The communists built there a railway to hell, to Irkutsk and all of these other places where the death camps were. Millions of people traveled along this railway line without hope and without God in the world. Ten million of them died. Can you believe that, friend? Ten million of them died. The purpose of this church and this ministry is to build a roadway to heaven. A railway to heaven by preaching the gospel. Amen. Every sermon that is preached is a spike driven into God's railway to heaven because of you, because of Christ. There are going to be people in heaven. Read the text again. Read the text again. Isaiah 61, 
verse 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. You and I, this ministry, and this church may never do what the church or the world considers to be important. But let us hereby resolve by the grace of God to do the work that Jesus did for his sake, for the souls of the people, and for the glory of God. Amen. Please bow your heads. Our precious Father today, we thank you for Jesus who came to preach the gospel to poor sinners like we are. We thank you for the mighty work of the Spirit of God and might it be that everyone will be able to say here today, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Our hearts today go out across the time zones, 16 time zones at least, to the people in Irkutsk and Siberia who are worshipping you on this Lord's Day. Bless them, comfort them, establish them, and strengthen them. And at last, dear Father, with us, save them, in the kingdom of God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen.